Um, we have two readings today. Um, the first one is Matthew 7, verses 6 to 12, and it can be found on page 788 in the Church Bibles and also on the screen and in your leaflets. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The second reading is... Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11, which is on page 950 of the Bibles. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Thank you, Mel. Thank you, Libby. Um, you may have noticed, new service leader. Hey, isn't it great? It's really good. Not that there's anything wrong with the other service leaders, can I say, but um, it's good to uh, have new people serving in different ways. So, Now, have you ever botched something so completely because you just went about it the wrong way? Uh, have you ever just mucked something up just so completely? What, what some of a younger generation might call, you know, the epic fail moment. Perhaps if you, uh, if you think you're immune to this, let me give you uh, two examples. Roadmaps. Have you ever, you know, you're so convinced, you know where you need to be. You know how to get there. You've been there before. You're, you're like me, you know. You've got a photographic memory. You're really good, spatially aware, and you just get yourself totally and utterly lost. Yes? Has that ever happened to you or is it just me? It's just me. Okay. This has surely happened to you. These two dreaded words. Ikea furniture. Okay. You know, it's obvious where all the bits go. It is completely obvious where the bits go. Uh, and uh, you do it all. And at the end of your time constructing this uh, monumental thing, um, not only does it look a little bit like that on the screen, but you've got that one widget that you're kind of wondering, where does that go? Um, I'm sure this isn't important. You know, they gave me an extra one, didn't they? There are some things that you really need to do it the right way for it to work, because it can be somewhat inconvenient, perhaps embarrassing, um, expensive, <laughs> catastrophic, the Sermon on the Mount has laid out before us the life of the kingdom. It's laid out over three chapters, Matthew 5 through to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, and it's like, it's like Ikea furniture. You've probably never thought that before, uh, that the Sermon on the Mount is like Ikea furniture. But if you don't do it the right way, it just doesn't work. We're going to explore this uh, a little bit further this morning under four particular headings. Here they are, a beautiful vision, an impossible dream, a generous father, and a dependent heart. Let's dive in. 
beautiful vision. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount all of last term and through the holidays and for the start of this term coming up. It's something that when you see Jesus unpacking the life of the kingdom before you, it is a truly amazing thing to see this life displayed to what he calls his disciples, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is life. This is what Jesus is calling you to. I don't know if you found that, that when you looked at the the life that he's laid out, you think, wow, wouldn't that be amazing if someone lived like that? And here we've come to the end of the main block of the sermon. If you've got your Bibles open there, uh, have a brief look at Matthew 5, 17. Jesus there talks about uh, the law and the prophets and the fact that he has come to fulfill them. And here at the end of uh, this section in Matthew 7 verse 12, he once again takes us back to the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets acts as the bracket around this middle section of the Sermon of the Mount. And in this, is the, uh, the life of the kingdom is unpacked. A life of radical righteousness, a life of love, of forgiveness, of truth, of perfection, of service, a life where religion is a religion motivated out of a heart that has been transformed, a life where we need not worry because we have a humble dependence, a humble reliance upon our Father. Jesus unpacks this whole life, and here at the end, at verse 12, he sums up everything that's come before in these words. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, it's important here to unpack that what Jesus is not saying is what I heard an awful lot of times growing up and from my parents and from others who said, if you don't want him to do that to you, why would you do that to him? That's framed in the negative, isn't it? So I don't want to be punched, so therefore I don't punch you. I don't want things taken away from me, so therefore I don't take your things. Do you note that Jesus isn't saying that? Jesus is actually talking about a life of love on the front foot. A life of love that says, if you are someone who wants to be loved, you will be a loving person. If you want to be forgiven, you will be a forgiving person. If you want people to be truthful with you, you will be a truthful person. Jesus here provides a radical summary, a radical summary, not just of the Sermon on the Mount, but here he tells us at the end of verse 12 that this little summary sums up the entire law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, in its earthly relationships, is focused around doing to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus sums up in another place, doesn't he? Talks about the vertical relationship, love God. Talks about the horizontal relationship, love your neighbour. Which is another way of saying, love your neighbour. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Are you in awe of this life that Jesus has opened before you, invited you to share? Do you look at this and think, wow, You know, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the Hindu leader in 
in India, he thought it was amazing. Gandhi put the Sermon on the Mount right up there, and I understand he spent a number of hours meditating on it each and every day. He saw, even though he was not a Christian man, he saw the beauty of this life, this amazing thing that Jesus called his followers to. Do we see it as beautiful, as desirable? Do we see that God reveals himself through the life of his people. That's what Matthew 5.16 tells us, that we are to let our light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So they don't see your good deeds and glorify you and say, wow, you're amazing. They actually see that God is at work in and through you. And so they see your good deeds and they recognize that he is the one who is to be glorified. Do we see the absolute beauty of this vision of life that Jesus lays before us? Do we perhaps see and think it's an impossible dream? Is it possible? Is it, is it just a, a figment of the imagination? Does Jesus just set the bar way too high? Now, there's two ways of answering this question, and both of them are wrong. Let me tell you the first answer. The first answer is, yes, it is an impossible dream. You know, you look at Jesus' standards and you think, I can't do that. I can't do that. You see where Jesus puts the bar and go, I could never, I could never jump over that. I'm so aware of my own shortcomings. I'm so aware of my own sinfulness that this life that he puts before us, you know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, okay, crushes us. It's not possible. It is an impossible dream. Some Christians, and you might be amongst them, we do this in a slightly more acceptable way. We have our theological grid, don't we? And we go and we get Paul's righteousness, this idea that we are set uh, we are given the righteousness of Christ through faith. The biblical idea, it's true. It comes through grace. God's free gift that he sees us as perfect in Christ. And so we say, this is an impossible dream and I don't even need to do it. So it doesn't need to crush me. I just don't even need to try. But can I say, Jesus does expect us to do it. Unless your righteousness, Jesus says, surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus here is not talking about that forensic, that legal category of righteousness that the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's talking about your righteousness of life, the life that he calls us to live. So if yes, yes it is an impossible dream is the wrong answer, the other answer obviously is no, and that's also the wrong answer. Let me tell you why no is the wrong answer. Because you can look, as the Pharisees did, at the demands that the law of God puts before you, and you can recalibrate. You can tweak them. You can redefine them. And so what you find yourself doing is making them achievable, making them possible. The Apostle Paul 
did exactly this. So in Philippians chapter 3, when he talks about his life before he became a Christian, his life as a Pharisee, he says this, that as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. The Apostle Paul ticked all the boxes. Two verses later, Philippians 3 verse 8, he says he considers everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The Apostle Paul saw that what he saw as faultless perfection was total rubbish. He saw that it just didn't stack up. Do we do this? Do we recalibrate? Do we have a way of actually making and convincing ourselves that we can live this life? I think we do. We are, you may just excuse the, 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 the jargon, we are what you would call evangelical Christians. For some of us, we know that kind of term. For some of others, you may think, oh, what's that mean? Well, that means fundamentally you are biblically based you are gospel-centered. You see the need for people to come and put their faith in Christ. Great things. I love being an evangelical Christian. I think it's actually the right form of Christianity, can I actually say. But we have a tendency in the evangelical Christian kind of camp to love the gospel, to know God's grace, the fact that we are accepted by the free gift of the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. So I stand, I'm forgiven by God through Christ. That's what, he's, that's what he's done, that's what we claim. But then we go and live by law. We actually look at this and go, I know I'm saved by grace, but I can do this. We look at the Sermon on the Mount and you're tempted to make a little to-do list. You're tempted to make a little category of things that I must do and we tend to then build our whole sense of self-awareness, our whole self-regard uh, on our performance. And we add other things in. Evangelicals have a few uh, pet topics. Um, our daily quiet times, we smuggle those ones in. Uh, we could maybe add evangelism in there as well because we want to be evangelists. We want to be sharing the gospel. And so if I'm doing lots of that, I start feeling really good about myself, my generosity. I want to be a generous person. I want to serve on a few rosters. So big tick to Libby. You've got one more tick on the box, you know. You can, you can add another roster to your tally. Not that Libby would ever be doing that, I hope. But we can do this. And we, turn, we can turn a religion of joy a faith that brings freedom into a new form of Phariseeism. Slavery. When you think about your faith, does it bring you joy? Do you think freedom? Or do you think burden? Do you get it when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Is that your experience? Because I tell you, Jesus is actually telling the truth. If it's not your experience, maybe you're going about the whole thing the wrong way. We evangelicals are not the only ones who tend to do this. There's another form of it, and it's kind of the Pentecostal, we live in the victory, it's all power, overcoming. I don't know if you've been to these kind of churches, 
but I've spoken to people who've been to these churches and they come out because their life is not victorious, their life is not overcoming, their life is not all this power and they come out feeling a failure because they're expected to achieve, they're expected because you've got the power. We've got the gospel and we live by law and we can't cope when we fail. We can't cope, we despair. We think evangelicals, I should be able to do this and we can't. The Pentecostals think, I have the power and they don't. But if on occasion we do succeed, we can so often end up proud. Proud of our achievements, looking down on those less gifted, less spiritual, less committed people. So we've got two answers, yes and no, and both of them are wrong. So what's the right answer? Any ideas? The right answer is yes, but no. Is it an impossible dream? Yes, it is. But no, it's not. Yes, it is an impossible dream because you are a sinner. No, it's not an impossible dream because you are saved by grace. Martin Luther got this. Martin Luther, you know, the German reformer 500 years ago, he had a slogan. Now, for the theological nerds out there, everyone else just tune out. If, this, if you don't identify as a theological nerd, forget that I even said this. Uh, the slogan, and you'll read it because people love quoting Latin, simul justus et peccata. Okay, rest of you tune back in. What it means is, it means you are at the same time righteous and a sinner. One of the problems is we can hold on to the sinner so tightly we forget the righteousness. Another problem is that we hold on to the righteousness so tightly that we forget the sinner. Martin Luther, I think, incredibly powerfully keeps both of those together and he says the Christian life is one that is lived essentially with this tension that you are at the same time righteous, fully accepted before God, but a sinner, sin is still operative in your life. Jesus latches onto this. What's the first characteristic of those who are in the kingdom? The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. The one who recognizes that they have nothing to offer. The one who comes to Jesus on the basis of what he offers, not on the basis of what we have. Poverty in spirit, recognition of need, total dependence. We sing a song, Fount of Every Blessing. It's one of my favorite lines in a hymn. It says, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We evangelicals can sometimes leave grace behind. The writer of that hymn, Jesus, Martin Luther, the entire scripture tells us that we are daily debtors to grace. The Apostle Paul gets it. Look at this. Paul says he can do all of this, how? Through him who gives me strength. In case you don't get it from Philippians, go to Colossians. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ powerfully works within me. 
He can and he can't. He can't do it by himself. But through Christ, in dependence upon grace, he can. So why does Jesus now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, why does he, after presenting this beautiful vision, why does he now speak of prayer? He wants to remind us that we have a generous Father. We should look at the Sermon on the Mount and go, for me, that is not possible. It should drive us to our knees in prayer. It should urge us. It should demand that we go to God and ask and seek and knock because we have a generous loving Father. And so Jesus here at the end of this beautiful vision of the life that we are totally incapable of living unless we live in dependence on Him encourages us and reassures us and persuades us to go to the one person, to go to the one place to find the resources that we need to live this life. He encourages us Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. In case you're a bit thick, he, he reassures you. Because everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find. The one who knocks, the door will be opened to them. And in case you still don't get it, he uses this image of us flawed parents. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you, though you are evil, though you are flawed, though you are limited, though you are sinful, you limited parents, you know how to give good gifts to your, father, to your children. How much more will the Father in heaven, who has none of your limitations, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask? Jesus takes us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and gives us the key that we need that we might truly live the life that he called us. He gives us the answer that is yes but no. It is impossible but it's not because God makes all things possible. He says go to him and ask for the good gift. So what is the gift? It is the power, it is the strength, it is the grace to live the life that he's called us. If you go into the Gospel of Luke, another one of the stories, another one of the accounts of Jesus' life, you find the parallel passage in Luke 11, where Jesus says, If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We go to the Father to seek what we need to live this life. To do it by ourselves is not possible, but it is totally possible through the strength that he provides. Some people, if they pluck this passage out of, out of context, they kind of look at it as, as a blank check, you know? Uh, you can write any figure in there and God will answer Ask, seek, knock, he promises he's going to listen. Actually, that's not what he's promising, can I say? What is he promising? He's promising that when you go to him and you say, Father, I need your help, 
I need your strength. I need your spirit to live the life that you called for me to live. I recognize my poverty, my need. Give me, give me what I need to live a life that people would see my deeds and glorify you. Jesus tells us the Father will never say no to that prayer. So Trinity Hills, are you a people of prayer? Well, I've got some stats that tell me exactly how prayerful you are. We have a thing called the National Church Life Survey. Admittedly, it's a little bit out of date. You did it last year. But it tells me that 38% of our people, that's you, spend time in prayer, Bible reading and meditation every day or, or most days. A few times a week, we could add another 30, so we're getting up to 68. kind of tells me that our, our independence is probably more of a characteristic than our dependence. That I can do it myself is probably more our dominant thought than I can do it through the strength that he provides. That I can strive with his energy that so powerfully works. Do we have perhaps a culture of self-reliance? Like, I know, I am one of you. I've lived here for a decade and we're all very similar. We're all tertiary educated, professional, successful, this kind of thing. That's us. We're good at doing it our way. We're living in a part of a world where we achieve what we set out to. Jesus is telling us that without him we will achieve nothing. We will turn into Pharisees. We will turn into something but not reflecting the, the true character of the kingdom. Do we pray? And when we pray, what do we pray for? You know the sermon, uh, you know the, the Lord's Prayer? I think we jump. Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Do you find yourself doing that? You've got these things on your heart, on your mind, and they're the things that you're focused on. We jump over, hallowed be your name. May your name be seen as holy. May you be glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, in my life, in this community, in this world, do we jump straight to give us this day? We, answer, we ask God to answer in the way that we want how should we be praying? Well, Mel read for us from Philippians a way that the Apostle Paul was praying for the church in Philippi. Let me read to you from Philippians 1 verse 9. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless, for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I think Paul's been meditating on the Sermon on the Mount and he's praying that God would realize that vision in the life of the church of Philippi. Is that the kind of things that we are praying? For some of you, you've got, I think you've got exams in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, 
When you're praying, do you go, God, 99.95, ask, seek, knock. You know, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. You promise to listen. How should you pray about that? Is it wrong to pray for a course or a mark? Not necessarily. Maybe that's not yours. Maybe you're looking for a promotion at work. Maybe you're looking for a relationship. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiancé, a husband, a wife. Is it wrong to pray for those things? No, maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you've finished uni, finished TAFE, finished school, you're just looking for the job. What is the right way to pray about these things? And Jesus wants us to pray about the nitty-gritty. But it's actually more important how we pray about these things. Pray for the ATAR, yes. But pray that wherever God puts you, you would honour Him. That in the job that He gives you, you would give glory to Him. That in the relationship that He blesses you with, that you would serve Him faithfully and love Him above all. Sometimes we get so hung up on the gift, we forget the giver. Jesus is saying, go to the giver. You want more of the giver. You want more of the Father. You want Him and He will give you everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And He will always, other things will be added to you. One other thing the NCLS showed us is this. 45% of attenders said that they had experienced much growth in faith in the previous 12 months. As part of me, I go, that's fantastic. 45% much growth. 55% little or no growth. Wow. Is that your experience? I don't raise this to judge you. But Jesus here is saying that if you want to grow, if you want to know God better, if you want to see his purposes worked out more fully in your life, if you want your character to reflect more and more of Christ, if you ask God, he will answer this prayer. But 55%, it's a dangerous prayer to pray. Think carefully. Because there is a blank check involved in this prayer, but it's the prayer that it's the blank check that you give to God, not that He gives to you. He's given you Christ. If you come and say to Him, Not my will, but yours be done, because that is what you will be praying, He will transform you by whatever means He deems necessary into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. So why would you do it? Because Jesus prayed that prayer first. Because Jesus was in the garden and he chose the life of obedience, the path of suffering, that his life might bring glory to the Father, that he might bring blessing to us. Why would we give anyone such a blank check because he has given us so much more and the thing that we must remember is the promise that's there in Philippians 1 verse 6 that the one who began a good work will carry it on to the day of uh, to completion in the day of Christ Jesus so what's it mean let's get down to the application 
the dependent heart. There's an obvious application to this sermon, isn't there? What's Jesus tell us to do? Ask, seek, knock. He tells us to pray and to keep praying. But what I want you to go away with, what I want you to be thinking and praying about is how you pray and why you pray and what you are praying for. Because the good gift that God gives us through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise that he will always deliver on, is the promise that he will make you more like his son. And here Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of this beautiful vision, he is giving us the key, and the key is to go to God with a dependent heart and to say, do in me what you will. Change me to be more like Christ. Give me everything that I can be a person that loves, not hates, that tells the truth, that serves that reflects the character of my Father in heaven. And that's not grit and determination. That's not some spiritual high. That is daily going to our Father and seeking His grace. Daily going to our Father and asking that His Spirit would work in us. Will we pray? Will we pray? knowing that God will never say no to that prayer. Let's pray now. Father, we ask that you would be at work in us. Help us to love you. Help us to see the beauty of the life you have called us to, the wonder of your grace that made it possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. Father, help us to see, help our hearts to know, help us to be captivated by your love and grace, that we might crave to know you more, that we might strive to serve you better, not in our strength, but in the strength that comes freely from your hand. Father, we thank you for this reassurance. We thank you for this promise that you will always hear this prayer. And Lord, may we be a church that is growing in your grace, that is reflecting you more and more, that people might see us and give glory to you because of us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.